Well, amen. That's a great song, isn't it? I'm so thankful for what a wonderful reminder of just the selflessness with which our Savior went to the cross. No other way to secure salvation for me or for you. And so praise His holy name. Well, how are you doing this morning, church? Are you good? Some of you don't look too good. I, I, I just I don't know why. I don't see a whole lot of dark blue out there in the room this morning, but I do see some light blue. Just thought I'd rub it in. There you go. And for those of you that don't know what in the world I'm talking about, well, you've not missed anything. Not at all. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I hope you've had a wonderful, wonderful week, and you've come ready to... Uh, dive into God's Word. I want to encourage you, if you have your Bible, be finding your place in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I did have someone ask me earlier that if I saw my shadow on Friday, I thought, what, what do you mean by that? They said, well, I just wanted to know if we had six more weeks in Romans chapter 1. Or what? <laughs> no, I promise we don't have that many, but I do just want to look at two verses this morning, and that's Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. And I will say this at the beginning of the message this morning, that the two verses of Scripture that I want us to look at may very well be two of the most important sentences in the entire letter to the Romans. And for that matter, they may as well be the most important sentences in all of human language. Because these two verses, Romans 1 16 and 17 really sum up the entire theme of the book of Romans. And in these verses, Paul explains for us in miniature form the entire essence of Christianity. And so as we read these verses, you'll know exactly what I mean when I say that they represent really the essence of, of Christianity, the gospel. And so I want you to stand with me this morning as we read from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous." shall live by faith. And so in these two wonderful verses of Scripture, the Apostle Paul explains for us in miniature form what he's going to go on to explain through several chapters here in Romans. And so I want to speak really from this subject this morning, unashamed of the gospel. Paul says, when I consider what the gospel is, and how I've made it my ambition to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He says that in verse 15. He says, you need to know that I am not ashamed of this gospel. Because I recognize it for what it is. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes its message. And so would you pray with me for a moment? Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful, Lord, for the wonderful gospel of Jesus. And we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. It's a very important message. And so, Father, as I stand and preach this morning, I pray that you would use my words 
May you bless your word as it's proclaimed. Give us ears to hear and, Lord, a heart to respond to the truth of your message. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that you stumbled upon something that was sure to change the world. Something that would provide relief for countless thousands of people. A thing for which you would go down in history and be remembered for. Imagine with me for just a moment that you discovered the cure for cancer. If you discovered the cure for cancer, what would you do with your newfound discovery? Well, I can tell you what you wouldn't do. You, you probably wouldn't sit on it for a while and not tell anybody about it. Uh, you probably wouldn't bury it somewhere in a closet and then go on about living your life. No, your discovery would bring hope to untold thousands of people. In fact, most of us, I imagine at some point, have watched someone that we love very, very much go through cancer. Many of you in the room have been there or are there now. I can remember several years ago, I preached the funeral of a 38-year-old man who died just weeks after being diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. He left behind a wife and three small children. But if you possess the cure for cancer, how much of your time, your energy, your resources would you invest to make sure that this wonderful gift would be available to as many people as was possible in your own lifetime. Well, I can almost guarantee that you'd probably pull out all stops and spare no expense to get word out that you've discovered the cure for cancer. Well, I think that's a very fitting illustration for the passion and the purpose of the Apostle Paul's life. From what we know about him, the Apostle Paul was a man who had been given the cure for something that was far worse than cancer. Paul devoted his life to the spread of the gospel because he knew that the gospel alone really provided the answer for humanity's sin problem. There's no other hope, no other cure, no other solution. So the gospel then really became the driving force behind Paul's life, and ultimately it was something for which Paul would give his life because he's going to be martyred for his testimony uh, later on down the road. And so it's this gospel cure that's the subject about which Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. And, and where, where Romans is in the New Testament, it's not insignificant that it follows the book of Acts, if you think about it. Acts really tells the story of the forward movement of the church into the whole world. What begins at Jerusalem spreads from Jerusalem uh, to really the rest of the, the, the Roman Empire. If that is the movement of the church, well, then Romans represents the message of the church. What message was it that the apostles and those early Christians took to the ends of the earth? Well, it was, it's this gospel news of what Jesus Christ has done to save us from our sin problem. And so within these chapters of Romans, Paul lays out the simple gospel of God's plan for salvation for both Jew and Gentile. So that Romans really is the clearest, most detailed explanation of the gospel that we find anywhere in the New Testament. 
It's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've already shown you how Paul really uses this word gospel several times in just the first 17 verses of chapter 1. In verse 1, he refers to it as the gospel of God. In verse 9, he refers to the gospel of his son. Verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel. And now, in verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so it's really this last phrase there that I want us to focus in on for a few moments this morning. The fact that Paul is an unashamed witness of the gospel simply because of what he understands the gospel to be. So if you're following along in the outline this morning, here's really the key idea that I want us to grasp from these two verses. You and I must never be ashamed of the gospel because it's the gospel alone which is the power of God to salvation and also the provision of righteousness, God's righteousness, for those who believe its message. And that's really the key idea in these two verses. When someone says, okay, well, pastor, why would anybody be ashamed of the gospel? Maybe you're sitting there and you're wondering, why would anybody be ashamed of good news? If gospel means good news, why would anybody be ashamed of that news? Well, it's really easy for us to sit here among friends and make the statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But how confident are we in the gospel when we're not among friends? But maybe among those who would ridicule our faith, those who would have questions and skepticism and cast their doubt on the claims of the gospel. I'm reminded of something from Peter's life. You remember where Peter was among the disciples and uh, he made this statement, Lord, these other men may deny you, but I will never deny knowing you. He's really confident and proud in that moment, but it's not too much longer that it's Peter who's denying knowing the Lord three times before a servant girl. And so what does that mean then, to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, the word that Paul uses there in verse 16 uh, is a word that means to be embarrassed by something, to be reluctant to do something out of fear of humiliation. All of us knows what, what it's like to be embarrassed by something. Our teenagers know what this is really. Dad, don't embarrass me. Mom, don't embarrass me. How many of you have ever heard that before? Uh, never forget, when I was a teenager, when dad would come pick me up from school, standing out in front of the school with my buddies, and dad at the time was driving this old Ford LTD. The shocks were out of it so that when it came to a stop, it rocked back and forth. <laughs> and looking back on it, I probably should have told dad, dad, you'll just park about a mile from the school, I'll walk, and I'll meet you at the gas station or something. And now I get to return the favor to my kids. So we know what it's like to be ashamed of perhaps something that we've said or something that we've done, maybe a decision that we've made. All of us know that type of shame. That's not the type of shame that Paul is referring to here. He's talking about being embarrassed by something that really has a bold claim. It's interesting that this is the same word that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, where he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with all the holy angels. 
this is also the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Timothy uh, chapter number 1 where he's writing to a young pastor. And he says in verse 7, God's not given us a spirit of fear, Timothy, but of power, love, self-control. And then he says this in verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Down in verse 12, Paul says this, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded, I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he's entrusted to me. And so why does he feel the need to tell Timothy to not be ashamed? Well, Timothy's a young pastor. He's pastoring in a very difficult place, surrounded by a hostile, unbelieving culture. There are always going to be those who want to vilify the message and even persecute the messenger. And Paul is encouraging Timothy to place all of his faith and all of his confidence in God and in the gospel of God. And here Paul tells the Romans the very same thing. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Paul says, because I know what the gospel is. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And so he's going to spend the next several chapters explaining the truth that he sets forth here in verses 16 and 17. Now, in our time remaining this morning, I just want to ask three questions that I want us to really get at answering. And I believe the answer is found here in these two verses of Scripture. So the first question that I would ask of this text is this question, what is the gospel message? If Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, then obviously we need to know what he's talking about. What is the gospel message to which he refers? You remember that word gospel uh, it translates a word, euangelion, which in Paul's day simply meant an announcement of good news. It was a political term that was used by the writers of the New Testament to describe the good news of the victory which has been won over sin and over Satan and over death and over hell and the grave through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. So that we understand the gospel to be news. It's good news that demands to be shared. It's an announcement of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ to save men and women from their sins. And so you'll notice that Paul, in verses 14, 15, and 16, he makes three personal statements as far as the gospel is concerned. Uh, back up in verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. That word obligation, he just simply means I'm in debt. Not to God, because God has paid the debt. He's not talking about being indebted because of his sin. All of that's already been paid, paid in full by Jesus Christ. He's a recipient of God's grace. And yet he realizes that he's, he's a servant of God. He's a servant of Jesus Christ the gospel has changed his life, and as such, he's indebted to take the, the, the word of the gospel to the entire world. He's obligated. And he says, I'm not just obligated, but I'm eager, there in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So as far as Paul's concerned, it didn't matter if a person spoke Greek or if they were a barbarian. 
It didn't matter their social class. It didn't matter their social barrier, that kind of thing. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel even to you who were there in Rome. Why? He says, because I know what the gospel is. (laughs) It's the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's the euangelion. It's the same word we get evangelism from. You ever heard this, uh, this definition given of evangelism? Someone says evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I like that, don't you? Uh, If you know Jesus Christ, can't you say that he's the bread of life who satisfies your hungry soul? So there's this sense in which evangelism is simply sharing you as one beggar, sharing with other beggars where to find bread. But it's more than that. You might think of a metaphor uh, that's even a little bit more helpful. Think of it as one potential victim of a disaster telling another potential victim of a disaster where they might find an escape, the one and only way of escape. Imagine you're in a burning building, and you're there with all of your coworkers, and uh, the floor upon where you work, it's just, it's erupted in flames and smoke, and no one can see, but now you know where the way of escape is. Everybody else around you is in the dark, but you know where the way of escape is. I'll tell you what you would do if you truly were concerned for your co-workers, you would scream to the top of your lungs and try to get the attention of as many as you could, follow me. Here's the way of escape. Here's the way that you can be saved from disaster. There's a sense in which this is what evangelism consists of. It consists of you and me pointing people to the only way of escape from sin, death, judgment, and hell. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul says here, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm obligated to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I know that the gospel is the only hope of salvation for men and women, for everyone who believes. And so I thought about this question. What are some reasons that people might give uh, to be ashamed of the message? Why is it that some folks would say that they're tempted to be ashamed of the message of the gospel? Why is it that there's nothing like spiritual opposition that comes up the moment you begin to get serious about communicating or sharing the gospel with someone? Let me tell you, all of hell fights against that. It's a spiritual battle where we're engaged for the souls of men and women and children as we share the gospel There are spiritual forces at work that want to oppose that message. And so the world, under the domination of the evil one, largely opposes the proclamation of this message. But you see, some people come up with various reasons for which they're offended by the gospel. And some folks may be ashamed of the gospel on the basis of some of these reasons. I think about intellectual reasons. Some people stumble when it comes to the gospel because it goes against the world's intellectualism. It doesn't jive with all of the latest ideas and philosophies that the world has espoused. Think about when Paul was writing to the Corinthians. You remember when he said that the gospel was to the Jews a stumbling block? The word that he uses there is scandalon. It's a word that means scandal, scandalous. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. And Paul's point there is that it was an offense to a lot of people from an intellectual standpoint. Now, you know the apostle Paul was a brilliant man. He was an able man, but 
the power of his ministry, it's not, you don't find the power in really the brilliance that he possessed, but it's just the anointing of God on his life and the power of the message that Paul preached. It's the gospel. Paul knew what it meant to be ridiculed for the gospel. Acts chapter 14 says that he was stoned and left for dead at Lystra. Acts chapter 16, he was imprisoned in Philippi. Acts chapter 17, he's chased out of Thessalonica. Acts chapter 19, his ministry leads to a riot at Ephesus. Earlier on in his ministry, he had to be smuggled out of the city of Damascus. There in Athens, as he's uh, engaging the intellectual elites of Athens and their philosophical ideas, he's laughed at and mocked. He's considered to be a fool in Corinth. He's accused of being a lawbreaker and a blasphemer by the religious elites in Jerusalem. And so literally, everywhere the Apostle Paul went, he faced opposition and ridicule because of the message that he preached. And yet here he's communicating to the Romans that I'm intending to come. I'm going to make a visit to Rome, the imperial city, uh, the city of power where all of those intellectual heavyweights live in the shadow of the Caesars. And Paul says, my message is going to be the same message I've preached everywhere else. The message is going to be this, that the Savior of the world is crucified, resurrected, ascended, and coming again. And imagine what a stumbling block and what an offense it would have been to all of those intellectual heavyweights to hear news that their only hope is with a crucified carpenter from Nazareth, from somewhere in the backwater of the empire, where everything they've been conditioned to believe tells them that their hope of salvation lies with the power of the Caesars. But Paul is saying, no, you're not going to find any of your hope on Capitoline Hill here in Rome. You're going to find it at Calvary's Hill in Jerusalem. You're going to find it through the message of a crucified, buried, raised Savior. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this message. But some people stumble at the message because it doesn't jive with the world's intellectualism. It doesn't jive with the, wor the world's philosophies. And sometimes we in the church are tempted to be ashamed of the message of the gospel. And we think, well, if we could just maybe soften it a bit, then the rest of the world would really take notice. I read a quote this week in my study that I thought was really helpful. A profound statement by Jeffrey Wilson. Listen to this. The unpopularity of a crucified Christ has prompted many to present a message which is more palatable to the unbeliever. But the removal of the offense of the cross always renders the message ineffective. An inoffensive gospel is an inoperative gospel. In other words, a gospel that doesn't offend is a gospel that has no power. But then he makes this statement that Christianity is often wounded most in the house of its friends. That well-meaning people, even within the church, in an attempt to want to take the gospel to those who are not believers, they want to detract from the gospel and they want to avoid the claims of the gospel that they tend to be embarrassed by. The fact that the only hope of salvation for the world is repentance and faith in a crucified, resurrected Savior that doesn't square with the world's intellectual elites. And so we think, well, if we could just appeal to the, to the example of Jesus and just get the world to follow the example of Jesus... And that'll give them a foot into the door of the kingdom. Now, let me tell you something. You are not saved by imitating the example of Jesus. That is not the gospel. 
Now, a lot of people think, well, I just, I'm a Christian because I'm trying to be like Christ and I'm following the Sermon on the Mount. Well, what you're doing is you're basically just your own moral performance. You trying to be like Jesus, you think that's, that's, what, that's not the gospel. And if that's you, how's that been working out for you lately? Especially when Jesus makes statements like this, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. How's that been working out for you lately? You ever done that with perfection? As far as the law is concerned, Jesus kept the law with perfection. How about you? You broke the law on your way to church this morning. Just go ahead and testify and be be honest. You know you did. We're not saved by imitation. No, we're saved through participation. what, What do you mean by that? Listen, participation. Faith that Jesus Christ He kept the law perfectly, but he died on a cross in your place. And he was raised for your justification so that you come to faith in him and you recognize that if there's going to be any standing with God, it's got to come through Christ alone and his merit, not your own merit. And you see, that's an offensive message to those who want to appeal to their own self-righteousness. Some people are offended at the moral claims of the gospel and they think that they have moral reasons and they say, well, that message of a crucified saint. I've heard people even refer to Christianity as divine child abuse. How could a loving God sacrifice his one and only son? And they recoil at the claim of the gospel, especially the claim that this is the only way that a person can know God. But you see, Paul comes along and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because I know that this gospel, this is the only way to salvation. In fact, it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The word power that he uses there, dunamis. I know you've heard this before, but it's the Greek word we get the word dynamite from. Dynamite. Perhaps a better word would be dynamic. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the dynamic of God to salvation. It's not that it just points us to the power of God or tells us about the power of God. No, Paul says it is the power of God to salvation. There's something about the message itself. It is powerful. And power is awe-inspiring. Power is life-changing. I think about if you've ever visited Niagara Falls, you know what it's like to stand beside those falls and you see all of that cascading water plunging over those cliffs. And you hear the, wo- the roar of those waterfalls. I remember when I was there, it made me feel very, very small. Or you think about the power of the sun that's shining at this very moment. Without the sun, but 93 million miles away, which is basically one gigantic fusion reaction, but every single second the sun is producing some 650,000 times as much energy as the earth consumes in an entire year. And all of that energy gets put to good use. Now you think about it, without the sun's power, without that dynamic, earth would live in total darkness. There would be no wind. There would be no rain. The trees and the plants would not grow 
life as we know it would be unsustainable on this planet, but there's something about that son's dynamic. But listen, Paul comes along and he's telling us here that there's a dynamic, there's a power that's far greater than the power of the son. It's the power of God's son, the gospel of God's son. That's the dynamic that changes lives. That's the dynamic that results in salvation for every man, woman, student, boy, girl, who believes, who believes. And so don't think of the gospel then as being simply a list of instructions for you to follow on how to change. No, the gospel itself is the dynamic. It is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And so in that, in that light, it's news to be welcomed and believed. It's not a checklist of rules to be followed. Because the gospel tells me what God has done and what God will do. The issue is, do you take God at his word and will you believe the gospel? So question number one, what is the gospel? Well, Paul sufficiently answers that question for us here in Romans. Now, question number two that I want to ask is this question, who is the gospel for? Having said something about what the gospel message is, Paul follows that up by saying something about who the gospel message is for. Notice he says that it's The power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. It is power resulting in salvation to everyone who believes. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What does that mean? Well, it means that this is how God has worked in history. That this message has been communicated through God's chosen people. God chose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees through whom God intended to bring blessing to the whole world and that blessing ultimately it's centered in Jesus Christ the one and only savior of humanity that's what he means there when he says that it's to the Jew first but also to the Greek he's not saying that the Jew is better off than the Greek he's simply saying that this gospel is for everyone there's not a person alive on the planet who doesn't need to hear this gospel You know, the gospel needs to be shared with every single person in your circle of influence. Every person in your sphere of relationships, they need to hear the gospel. Every member of your household, they need the gospel. Your children, your grandchildren, they need the gospel. Your, Your fellow students and classmates, they need the gospel. The people you live beside, the people you work with, they need the gospel. Uh, Not just close, but we've got to take the gospel to the ends of the earth in obedience to the commands of Jesus because every person alive on the planet, no matter their skin color, no matter their language, no matter their cultural background, in every corner of the globe, men and women must hear the gospel because it's a gospel to be communicated with everyone. In fact, that may be why John 3.16 is considered by so many to be the greatest verse in the Bible. I think if you were to ask the average person what's the most well-known verse in the Bible, most people would probably say John 3.16. In fact, you can sit there and you can quote it from memory without even having to look at your Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that just a wonderful verse? I read this this week and I thought, man, that really sort of explains in a nutshell why this is perhaps the greatest verse in the entire Bible. Think through the full ramification of what this verse tells us. 
for God, that's the greatest lover. So loved, that's the greatest degree. The world, that's the greatest company. That he gave, that's the greatest act. His only begotten son, the greatest gift. That whosoever, that's the greatest opportunity. Believes, that's the greatest simplicity. In him, the greatest attraction. Should not perish, that's the greatest promise. But, that's the greatest difference. Have, this is the greatest certainty. Everlasting life, that's the greatest possession. Doesn't that kind of put it in perspective why this is such a powerful verse? Because it communicates this wonderful truth of God's love, which our mind, can't, we can't even begin to wrap our mind around this notion that God so loved the world. Insert your name there in John 3, 16. God so loved Brandon Ware that he gave his one and only son. So never forget that this gospel is to be shared with everyone. You'd be absolutely shocked at the number of people within an earshot of this service this morning who questioned that notion, whether or not God loves me. In fact, some of you this morning in the room, you may really be wrestling with this issue. Does God really love me? Think about a man who's down on his luck, who can't seem to hold, hold a job. Maybe his friends have walked out on him in his life, and he may begin to wonder, does God really love me, or is he against me? Or a woman who's experienced a string of bad relationships, and people have ran out on her and left her high and dry, and she wonders, does, does God really love me? Or the young person who so desperately tries to fit in with a particular crowd that experiences rejection no matter where he or she turns, may begin to question, does God really love me? And so once you really begin wrestling with this idea and this notion, does God love me? This promise means so much. God so loved the world. God so loved you that he gave his one and only son. Or the way that Paul puts it in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So that the invitation is extended to you. It doesn't matter your social class. It doesn't matter your, uh, uh, whether or not you've got a degree from a particular institution or whether you have no degree. None of that matters. The things that the world says is important doesn't matter when it comes to God. God is no respecter of persons. He loves you. And this offer of salvation is open and it's available to everyone. Now, folks, that's the message we've got to share with the world, isn't it? We shouldn't be ashamed of this message, even though the world may resist it, even though the world may oppose it, even though the enemy may stir up opposition against us as we seek to share it. We know that this is the one and only hope of salvation for the world. This gospel message is the one and only way of escape. So what is the gospel message? Well, Paul has sufficiently answered that question for us. Who is the gospel for? He wants us to know that it's for everyone. Now listen to this. It applies though. The power to salvation applies only to the one who believes it. 
I've heard it said that nobody deserves to hear the gospel twice until everybody has heard it once. You think about the vast majority of people around the world who perhaps have never heard the gospel. And yet, at the same time, I wonder, (laughs) we have such access to truth, access to the word of God in our own culture, in our own generation. It's an amazing thing that we can be so numb and callous to it all. God, help me to be sensitive. God, help me to make the most of the opportunities that I have to know this gospel, believe this gospel, and preach this gospel with every breath that I have. The third question that I want to ask is this question. Why is the gospel necessary? What is the message itself? Well, it's the message of Christ crucified, buried, raised to life again. Who is the gospel for? It's got to be preached to everybody. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And why is the gospel necessary? Well, verse 17 provides that answer for us. One person has said that you should never refer to Romans 1.16 without also referring to Romans 1.17. Because look at what Paul says there. For in it, that is the gospel that he's not ashamed of. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So why is the gospel necessary? Well, because Paul says this is the one and only way for you to receive righteousness. That word righteousness refers to right standing with God. It's a legal term. You've got to have legal status to be able to stand. Now, the thing is, because we're members of a fallen race, and we're sinners by birth, and we're sinners by choice, left up to our own selves, we don't have standing with God. And so sometimes a person says, well, maybe if I work hard enough, I can earn my standing with God. And so I'll join the church. I'll I'll read my Bible through. I'll even agree to serve as a deacon if they ask me. (laughs) But can I tell you that none of that can give you standing with God? There was a time in Paul's own life, he thought that all of those fleshly accomplishments like that could give him standing with God. He thought that he had a righteousness through his own performance. And he writes all about this in Philippians chapter 3. But you see, he once looked at his life much in the same way that an accountant would look at a balance sheet of assets and liabilities. And he was proud and, and thought that being right with God meant that he had more in the asset column than he had in the liability column. So that one day at the end of his life, perhaps all of his assets would outweigh his liabilities and When Paul looked at that, he said, you know, I'm in pretty good shape. And so if we were to apply that to our own lives, we might could say this, well, I'm righteous because of what I've inherited. For Paul, he thought he'd inherited, you know, his being a Jew, the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee. We might say, well, my dad was a deacon in the church or my mother was a godly saint I've got an important last name. Our family, we can trace our ancestry all the way back to the Mayflower. (laughs) But you know, that's not going to give you right standing with God. You may even be tempted to think that you're righteous because of what you've achieved for yourself. And you say, you know, I've got all of these Sunday school pins. You remember that back in the day? Perfect attendance record. You got a Sunday school pin at the end of the year if you had perfect attendance. Your tithing record. 
You say, man, I'm reading the Bible through for the umpteenth time this year. I serve at the soup kitchen. I put my kids in a Christian school. All of this, surely it's got to give me right standing with God. And the answer is, no, it doesn't. And all of those things are important. And all of those things have their proper place. But none of those things can give you right standing with God. You see, if you have right standing with God, you've got to recognize it can't be something that you achieve for yourself. It's something that you have to receive through faith. Because right standing with God, it's something that has been achieved by Christ through his sinless life and through his sacrificial death and through his resurrection. So that when you come and you say, by faith, I believe Christ. You are declared not guilty on that basis. And you were given the righteousness of Jesus. It's credited to your account. Free. Free. And so it's a gift that you receive in faith. And so the things that you think are assets to you, listen to me, they're really just liabilities if they keep you from faith in Jesus. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it's the only way to righteousness. The righteousness of God, it's revealed from faith for faith. That is, the Christian life from start to finish. It's all about faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This has always been God's design. And he's going back into the Old Testament here, and he's quoting from the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, where God says that my righteous one shall live by his faith. And so you need forgiveness of sin? I've got good news for you. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You need right standing with God? I've got good news for you because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. The issue is, will you receive it by faith? So this is a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. I want to leave you just with some closing points of application this morning and then we're through. First of all, you need to know that the gospel results in transformation. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Well, because he knows that it, it alone is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. And it results in transformation. It's the dynamic Paul could testify to this personally in his own life. It was the grace of God and the gospel that changed his life, that took him off of one road and put him on another road entirely. It was the gospel of God that changed Saul the persecutor and transformed him into Paul the preacher. And that same dynamic is the dynamic of God that can change your life. You say, Pastor, you don't realize where I've been. You don't realize what I've done. I have royally messed up in life. You don't think God already knows about that. You think you're too big of a sinner that God can't save you? You think you're more of a sinner than the Apostle Paul who murdered Christians and had them locked up in his zeal, in his blindness and lostness? You think you're worse than him? You're not worse than him. The gospel results in transformation. The issue is, will you believe it? And then secondly, the gospel leads to obligation. I've heard it said this way, what was good for Paul is also good for all. (laughs) If his life was transformed by the gospel, 
And then he was obligated, in that sense, indebted to the world to take the gospel to the world. What about me? What about you? If you've experienced the grace of God, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. And then the third point of application is this. The gospel spreads through proclamation. Results in transformation leads to obligation in my life, but it's spread to others through proclamation. One person telling another person where to find bread. One person like you, like me, telling another person where the way of escape is. Pointing people to Jesus. I came across some interesting statistics this week that I thought were really, really amazing. But it was a study that sort of surveyed people and asked questions and examined the various reasons for why people start attending church. And it revealed that only 2% come to a church because of that church's advertising. (laughs) So we can spend all of the money we want to on clever advertising and that kind of thing, and it yield 2% results. People choose a church on that basis. And then it said that 6% will come due to a pastor's invite. Another 6% will come due to some organized visitation program that maybe that church might have. But listen to this statistic. 86% of people come due to a simple invitation from a friend. 86%. The vast, overwhelming majority of people will choose to come to church on the basis of an invitation from another friend. The people in your peer group, the people in your sphere of influence, the people you work with, the people that you meet along the way. God wants to use you to just simply be a conduit, sharing the life-changing message of the gospel with that person. You know, the gospel came to you because it was headed to someone else. Don't be a cul-de-sac where the gospel stops, but be a conduit where you're sharing the message with other people. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the message. What about you? Let's stand as we pray this morning. Paul says, I am not embarrassed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, don't you think that maybe in his own life, he too faced that pressure and maybe that temptation, that stigma? Was he ever tempted to be ashamed of it, embarrassed by it? You know, maybe when he broke ranks with the Pharisees or when all of his friends turned against him. All of the persecution that he endured and the ridicule that he faced, the stigma that was associated with the message of the crucified, resurrected Lord. What was it that kept him going on and on and on? What was it that led him to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? For 25 years at this point, he's been preaching this gospel. Well, later on in Romans, he's going to say this. Romans 8, verse 18. He says, for I reckon, I consider, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed to us. (laughs) So a little bit of ridicule that you experience from the world. So what? The shame that's associated with the offense of the cross. The snide remark that someone may make about you. 
the sting of embarrassment that you might feel here in just a little bit when you and your family bow for prayer in a restaurant or something like that. Listen, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Because all of the ridicule that you and I may face from an unbelieving world will all pale in comparison in light of the future glory that's ours when we're with Christ for all of eternity. If you don't know Jesus this morning, why not now? Why not today? Why not respond in simple faith to this message and be saved? In fact, as Parker leads us in just a moment, maybe you need to come and you need to pray. Maybe there's someone that the Lord has laid upon your heart that you know they're far from God. They need to be saved. Maybe you just need to come and say, Lord, would you just give me the courage? Would you give me the strength? Would you give me the opportunity to share my faith this week with that person? Maybe it's an issue going on in someone's life that you know about. And you want to call out their name before the Lord. Whatever the nature of your need this morning, you feel free to respond. Father, thank you for your word. Bless it mightily in the hearts and lives of people. In Jesus' name, amen.